0: Father, we pray and we hope that our worship thus far has been pleasing to your ears. Uh, we hope that you have uh, received to a degree that upon which you died for, which is a group of redeemed people who still struggle with their sin throughout the week, sure, but are legally blameless uh, and are, are legally um, innocent, uh, regarded by you as children, who now come to you to sit under your word and gain wisdom, wisdom that this world um, can only give glimpses of but cannot help us fully uh, enjoy and dive in. Uh, be with us, Father, as we, as we open up your holy and inerrant eternal word that we may uh, better be servants of you and also understand uh, how to live joyful, happy, whole lives um, as those Um, under a king, in Jesus name we pray, amen.
1: All right, good morning friends, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's, it's good to see you all again, I've been away for a while after being on holidays with my family. And although I miss you guys, it was a really precious and rare opportunity because since my brother's in college and I'm married, we don't get to be around each other as much anymore. And one thing that I learned after spending this extended amount of time with my parents is the value of experience, right? And why so many people, both in our culture and in the workplace, value experience more The knowledge. So part of the trip was us visiting the site where my dad is working right now, and I was really amazed at how highly his subordinates thought of him, right? He somehow had really good relationships with them, at least the ones that we've met. Maybe he's filtered them. But anyway, the ones that we met really like him. And the reason is that they told us, that my dad learned, over his decades of experience, how not only to make sure that his team finished the task, but also to connect with his team so as to make them feel like they're appreciated and not below him. And it's like little things, like taking them out for lunch, giving different people instructions in different ways, always sitting in front of the car and having a conversation with the person driving him, And all of these little things that I'm pretty sure he's never learned in any class or seminar. But only through these countless repetitions and exposures to people and situations, which has given him a set of skills that has been perhaps as helpful to him as the theoretical and technical concepts that he needed to get him in that position. Now in the Bible... This kind of know-how is called wisdom. And the book of Proverbs that we're going to be spending a good chunk of this year studying is aiming to give us exactly this, a vision of what it would look like if someone were to live according to wisdom. Because you see, the wisdom of the Proverbs doesn't come through claims, or commands, not by saying Thou shall not, or Thus says the Lord, like the laws and prophets would. It doesn't derive its authority from some sort of covenantal divine connection. But it doesn't mean it's not authoritative, right? It's just communicated differently. More like a parent who is sharing to their child, to future generations, observations about life that help them succeed, because what the book of Proverbs is, in essence, is an accumulation of the insights of God's people throughout generations about how to live well, how to be good at life, helping us to develop these sets of practical skills about living according to the fear of the Lord, right? Which is the beginning of wisdom as Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says. Now, when we think of the book of Proverbs, most of us probably have in mind this collection of some short pithy sayings that give us wisdom about a particular topic, and there's tons of that for sure. However, we're not actually gonna see these collections of sayings until quite a bit later, right? Not until chapter 10. Instead, what the book of Proverbs does is that it gives us 10 speeches from a parent to a child about how to live wisely. Some very precious and helpful teachings that will be like a garland on our heads and pendants on our necks, as uh, chapter one, verse eight and nine says. These treasured adornments in that culture that is not only meant to make us look good or rich, because we're going to see a few more things that are supposed to be put on our heads and bound on our necks, but these adornments, these accessories, have a dual function. How it reminds us, at the same time, of two very important things, that we are signified and have been bestowed with a kind of honor. It beautifies us, and tells people that we have been given honor. Maybe the closest thing I can think about today that's similar is like my wedding ring, right? It reminds me of this very important commitment that I made, and publicly to everyone shows that at least to one person, I'm considered precious and hopefully honorable. But it has this dual function, right? that reminds us how we can be continuously appreciating the identity that we've been honored to become. These lessons that the Proverbs gives, we're meant to come back to, ponder them, and do our best to live by them. And by doing that, we will show that we have indeed been honored by wisdom. Right. So today, we're going to be looking at the first, of these speeches, the first practical way that will make evident to the world that God has honored us with wisdom. So let's read the first thing our Heavenly Father teaches us about what living in light of the fear of the Lord looks like. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 to 19. This is the Word of God. Hear, my son, your Father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching for they are a graceful garland around your neck uh, around your head and pendants for your neck my son if sinners entice you do not consent if they say come with us let us lie in wait for blood let us ambush the innocent without reason like sheol let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit we shall find all precious goods we shall fill our houses with plunder throw in your lot among us we will all have one purse my son do not walk in the way with them hold back your foot from their paths for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood for in vain a net is spread in the side of a bird but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So, before I go on, right, if you're planning to stick around for this series on Proverbs, let me show you how these speeches are generally structured, right? First, There's going to be an exhortation, an appeal from the father to the son to take to heart what he's going to say. Then there's going to be a lesson about this virtue is about to teach. And finally, there's always a concluding line about how this wisdom will be beneficial for us. And we certainly see this pattern in the passage that we just read, haven't we? And it's so interesting How the very first bit of wisdom, the first thing that the Bible tells us we need to practically live by to live well, is a piece of wisdom that many societies, worldviews, and religions have already also observed, that bad company ruins good character. In our passage, our Heavenly Father points out at least three things about this, all right? Our three points. Bad company, its attributes, its attractiveness, and its end. Bad company, its attributes, attractiveness, and its end. May the Lord give us ears to hear the wisdom He has given us today. So point one, bad company, its attributes. So let's jump straight in and... Look at what is the defining attribute of these sinners, these people that we should be avoiding, right? The group there that's called the sinners that are enticing us. It's super clear there in verse 11. The kind of people we should stay away from are those who are looking to lie in wait for blood and ambush the innocent without reason, right? So what this an image is, of is are these thugs, right? These highwaymen or Bagal in Indonesian, who would ambush innocent travelers, threaten them with violence, and rob them of their possessions. And in verse 12, it shows that they are actually proud of having this power. They pridefully proclaim themselves as being like Shaol what the Hebrews call where the dead go. So in a twisted way, being proud of being like death, they are able to indiscriminately take and consume whoever they like. Hence later in verse 16, it says that their feet run towards evil, and they eagerly and guiltlessly rush to shed blood, no longer seeing evil as actual evil. In other words, those whose influence should be avoided are those who are so lacking in love and have such complete disregard for the sanctity of human life that their moral compasses have been scrambled so as they are able to justify harming another human so that they can get what they want. And that's really screwed up, isn't it? I hope you agree. Because thankfully, most of us are privileged to be living at a time and a place and social situation where involving in gangs and killing and robbing people isn't ever going to be crossing our minds or a temptation for us. Right? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you're there snickering going, I would never. But... While we should really appreciate that this isn't uh, relevant specifically for us right now, this isn't the case for everyone for most of history. I'm sure that every single one of us here who are reading or watching the news know that right now there is indiscriminate violence against one group towards another who has been deemed as an enemy on a mass scale. And a lot of us here have lived through a time like this, where things like this do happen. I know for sure that those growing up here in Indonesia, around my age or older, knows what I'm talking about. So though this is a time of relative peace for us, let us never fool ourselves into thinking that we are above these instructions. Human history has demonstrated over and over again in every generation that humans are capable of this. Nonetheless, right, even if we're never going to be put in a position where killing or harming anyone is going to ever seem necessary, Jesus actually warns us not only against the act of murder, but every root of murder, envy. Hatred, anger, desire for revenge, all of these, God regards as murder. Now that hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? Because this means it's not enough for us to only refrain from the act of killing. But it ups the ante and requires us to be aware of all that's in our hearts that might even desire destroying or harming someone else. And the first thing that someone who is living under the fear of the Lord is to stay away from is anything or anyone that might encourage this kind of behavior. Meaning wisdom would condemn any and all systems and philosophies that are willing to disadvantage other people for the sake of others. It outright rejects any person or group that discriminates between people and refuses to give all humans the dignity they deserve as images of God. It stays far away from all and any influences that might incite hatred or prejudice towards particular communities, and even division within your own. That's what the main instruction, the main imperative of this text there in verse 15 is all about. Holding our foot from the path of sinners. Rather, wisdom would draw near and commend any person, group, or initiative that helps us love our neighbors as ourselves that helps us defend the innocent, help the weak, and strive towards the general well-being and flourishing of others, no matter who they are or where they come from. Therefore, friends, what this lesson essentially recommends for us to do is to take inventory of all the external influences that we have exposed ourselves to. The friends that we have, the shows that we watch, the things that we read, the music that we listen to, the places we go to, and so on, and to think critically about each one of them so that we can evaluate them on these terms. Do they uproot the seeds of violence and hatred in our hearts? or Do they plant them? Are they filling us with love or hatred? Gratefulness? or envy, compassion, or simply anger. And once we have discerned as best as we can the kind of influence these things have on us, prayerfully to do the hard work of scrubbing or pruning away all the unnecessary and harmful influences that we have identified. Because the psychological studies do agree as most of us have probably found self-evident, that we humans are all products of our environment, right? Nearly all our issues, our behaviors, our perspectives can be traced back to the environments that we have been exposed to, be it physical, cultural, social, emotional, political, or otherwise, because, as the famous adage goes, no man is an island. Everyone is connected to something because we are social creatures. Problem is, though, even though I feel like most of us know this, what kind of influences that are good and healthy for us is not always obvious. It can feel really subjective. We're not able to completely foresee what kind of influence some person or community or idea will have on us, and we don't always ourselves actually know what a healthy influence will look like so our default would probably to go and try some people find some people who agree with us or make us feel good about ourselves which of course you know aren't completely bad things in themselves but i'm sure you can see how If this is the decisive criteria about what kind of influences you allow in our lives, this tends to create these echo chambers, right? Like we're going to end up with environments where we're going to exclusively encounter people and ideas that only reinforce the opinions that we already have, creating this vicious cycle that never actually filters out the junk that we have believed in. So, what we need, friends, is an objective standard of goodness that we are all truly held accountable to. What we need is a community of people who are trying to live by this standard, where we can find people who are studying and are interested in meditating on this standard together, an experienced guide can help us understand these standards more clearly. And just so I can be explicit, I'm talking about the church here, guys, right? The institution that God built so that His standard of goodness can be known. See, the church is meant to be this refuge from the influences of the world that are enticing us to sin. The church is meant to be the place where we can grow in our appreciation of how precious human life is. And we can reprogram our moral compasses so that we can understand that our interest is not more important than the well-being of others, but rather the well-being of others is indeed themselves the subject of our interest. And necessarily, part of this reprogramming in the church, in the community of Jesus' followers, is really seeing that we can find a more lasting and meaningful fulfillment of the desires which has attracted us to those influences that has produced the seeds of murder in our hearts in the first place. Okay? And that's going to be what point two is about. So point two, bad company, it's attractiveness. So, after studying the sort of foolishness sinners get up to, our Father here tells us what motivates them to do such things. In verses 13 and 14, we see that there are two things identified there. First, that it is through violence they hope to experience or accumulate material abundance. They want to find all precious goods. Verse 13 says, and their houses to be filled with plunder, right? It's clear, right? What these sinners are after is wealth. However, wealth is never really desirable as an end in itself. Rather, what we're all really attracted to when we're gathering wealth is what we can access through wealth. And it could be a variety of things, right? A sense of safety or stability, the admiration of peers, the freedom to enjoy ourselves as much as we want, just to name a few examples. And rarely, these desires are you know, sinful and harmful and bad in and of themselves. And money is definitely involved in acquiring them. But when we go the way of these sinners, Right? and try to attain this wealth to fulfill the desire of our hearts by means of evil and at the expense of others. What this shows is that we have identified the money as the source of these good things that we want instead of really a means of getting it. Like it's the fountain and not simply the cup with which we can access the water that will refresh our souls. And I completely understand why it's very tempting for us to see money in this way. Money gives us this sense of control. We can hold it, calculate its value, and earn or find more of it. And the more we have of it, the more empowered we feel. So acquiring wealth, through sin is nothing less, really, and ultimately, than an attempt to take matters into our own hands. Using our power and seizing for ourselves the ability to grant for ourselves what we want. You see, it's about autonomy. Yet, also being the social creatures that we are, though we want the power to do things for ourselves, human nature does not want and does not allow us to really be by ourselves. is the second thing that participating in the community of sinners offers us, camaraderie, friendship. Look at verse 14, the second part of the sinner's appeal is that we can throw our lot in with them and that we will all have one f- purse. What this is, is an invitation to bind our faith with sinners, to become completely entangled with them so that what happens to the sinners would happen to us. And how is this supposed to be appealing? And it's twisted, but I kind of get it, right? When we're up to no good, for some reason, there is some kind of comfort in knowing that we're not the only ones doing something wrong. And weirdly, there is some kind of bond that is formed between people who are sinning together. This is actually a very common initiation rite used by gangsters, right? Whereby new members of the gang are required to participate with them in some crime, right? They're made to rob someone or kill somebody in order to incentivize loyalty to the gang. Because now, the newcomer, the new member of the gang, cannot back out and rat to the police without implicating himself, making devotion to the gang really the only option. And why people would do this, why it's so attractive, is that it appeals to this deep longing that every human has for meaningful connection. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to feel useless. We want to be a part of something and feel like what we do matters. Which again, right, isn't a wrong thing to desire. And sinning together with other people can really, or advertises itself at least, to be able to provide that. So, here's the point, right? Sinning and being in the company of sinners postures itself like it can fulfill some of the deepest longings of our hearts. However, the reality is, as Thesar alluded to in the liturgy, that these desires can only be satisfied in a counterfeit way through sin. Because the Bible actually gives us a different story. You see, rather than having to earn our goodness and blessings, The Bible tells us that God has actually already filled all creation with goodness and blessing. And although, right, we do have to make the effort to go out there and get it, like the desires of our hearts aren't just gonna fall into our laps while we passively sit around, right? The book of Proverbs is gonna be very clear about that. Nonetheless, according to the biblical worldview, the availability of these blessings for us was never dependent upon our ability to go out and get them. Rather, it all hinges upon the generosity of the all-good God who delights to give these things to us. So, quite the opposite to the sinners who feel like they have to take it upon themselves and do whatever it takes to be blessed, the wise, on the other hand, would adapt this posture of trust. Wherein our concern would be to draw near to the source of every blessing by honoring how God has instructed us to live in the world he created and trusting that this is gonna be for the best. Going along the grain of creation and coloring within its lines, to use an analogy. Likewise, the Bible tells us that we are inherently precious and meaningful. We are all made in the image of God, the most powerful and honorable being in all of creation has fearfully and wonderfully made us, and He loves us and is more committed to us than we can ever imagine, and this God deeply wants to connect with us, to connect His family to us and give us genuine, meaningful connections. So if this is the reality that the Bible tells us is true, and is ultimately true about every human, it is quite absurd for us to find and seek this affirmation that's been already freely offered by God from corrupt and limited sinners. You see, and it makes the willingness to harm other humans in order to connect with other humans to be really a perverse and unacceptable thing. So, my point here, friends, is that if we ever want to have a shot at being able to consistently resist the temptation of sin, or even better, eventually not be tempted when we are invited to participate in sin, this can only begin... If we learn to disengage from the narratives that lead the sinners to do what is right in their own eyes and drags others along with them, and then to replace them with the narrative that the Bible tells us about how the world works. And this can look like a ton of different things. It can look simply like choosing to be grateful to God for the blessings that we have instead of coveting what our neighbor has or lamenting about what we don't have. It can look like committing to integrity and honor even if your colleagues or competitors look like they're gaining an advantage over us by doing things in an underhanded way. Trusting that God has already given us more than enough to be really satisfied. Or it can look like letting go of a person or community that you love but you know, are right now poisoning your soul. Trusting that God will replace these relationships with deeper, meaningful ones that will make our hearts full and make us grow. Just to name a few examples. So what is it for you? How would your life look different if you live consistently with the biblical narrative. Food for thought, and uh, worth meditating on. Because not only does the narrative of the world ultimately give us empty promises, but at the end, the narrative of the sinners is always gonna lead to self-destruction, which is point three, bad company, its end. Let us now come back and observe carefully the end of our passage. Fittingly, the first fatherly lesson in the book of Proverbs ends with a proverb. It says here in verse 17, For in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. In other words, even birds are smart enough to not go where a trap is set for them. But these guys, verse 18, they serve, they set an ambush for their own lives. They set a trap for themselves. They're dumber than even the birds, beyond bird brained. Because here is the conclusion, the nexus of what we're supposed to understand. Verse 19. Everyone who is greedy for unjust gain, everyone who is willing, to violate divine wisdom and rely on their own wisdom and power in order to get what they want, it, right, referring to the gain that was gathered unjustly, takes away the lives of its possessors. In other words, the thing that we are willing to sin and harm other people for is going to be the death of us. And there are a couple of ways in which this is true, right? The first level, as most of us could probably intuit, is that when we make a habit of getting what we want at the expense of another person or community, there are going to be worldly repercussions. In the context of ancient Israel, if we harm someone, their family members have the right to hunt us down to get payback. Thankfully, now we have the police and the legal system to do that messy work for us. But on a more general note, which I suspect many of us here has experienced firsthand, is that the damage and the gains that we make through sins and have caused people around us and our souls to be themselves damaged. How the money... We gain unjustly. Don't actually give us the peace and security that we seek, but only leads us to more greed, insecurity, or paranoia. How the sexual fulfillment that we have sought outside of the covenant of marriage actually makes it more difficult for us to find and maintain healthy and fulfilling relationships. How the resentment we harbor and hold towards someone or some group never actually gives us the justice that we seek, but just continues to eat away at us and prevents us from getting the peace and joy that actually God has made already available to us. You see, sin promises fulfillment, but consistently leaves us needing more. It's a slippery slope that in the end will leave us with more insecurity, more unsatisfaction, dissatisfaction, and ultimately emptiness. Instead of getting the better life we seek through sinning, sin is actually ruining our lives. And I know some of us here know what I'm talking about. However, there is yet a more serious consequence about walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners. That does not come from any worldly power or human authority, but from the judge of the universe himself, the one before whom we must stand when our earthly lives is spent to take responsibility for what we have done with our lives. And each of us here, friends, can be sure that he does not miss a thing. He sees clearly more than us how damaging our stupid, selfish, sinful decisions are. He knows about every relationship that we have broken, everyone we have deceived, cheated, or hurt. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And we stand naked and exposed before him to whom we must give account. And all the damage that our sins have done, like the blood of Abel that was spilt on the ground, calls out to God and points to us, saying, guilty. Therefore, who among us here dare say that you can stand in the judgment? Who here can say that when God opens the closet, that there aren't going to be any skeletons there. Most definitely not me. No matter how much ministry I've done, and I do it full time, right? No matter how much money I give away to those in need, it doesn't change or correct the fact that I've done what I've done, I've made those choices, I've hurt those people, and I must be held Responsible. But by now, for UCCC you regulars, you'll probably know where this is going, right? Because each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not, has already chosen self destruction. Whether that's going to come in this life or the one after, nobody here can get away scot free. That's the predicament that we're all in. But the wonderful news. Christianity tells us that this is not the end of the story. Because God, in His infinite wisdom, gave us a way to both truly lay hold of the life that we are all seeking, while at the same time saving us from the self-destruction that our sinful choices has sent us spiraling towards. God Himself, has intervened and gave us a chance at life. And he did that by becoming human and lived the life of perfect wisdom, delighting in the law of God and being completely in sync with how the world was created. And though he was tempted by every evil, this human, Never consented to the way of sinners. But instead, he gave himself over to the violence of sinners. He let his blood be shed. And he chose to go down to the grave so that we do not have to be swallowed by it. And as you may have guessed, friends, this human is Jesus. Who both gave us the example of perfect wisdom in his life at the same time, on the cross, allowed His life to be taken so that we can be given ours. Therefore, if you are a follower of Christ and you are trying your best to resist the allure of sin, this passage reminds us to look to Christ and be grateful to Him. That though we consistently forfeit life through our choices because of Him, our life Will not be taken away. So let us, Christian, resolve to remove any and all influence in our lives that still fool us into thinking that we're able to find fulfillment to our own wisdom and power. And let's continue and learn to draw near and commit to the way of the wisdom of God, who became flesh and is leading us to eternal life. But if you are hearing all this right now, and you don't think you're a Christian, and you're still worried about your life, if you find yourself hustling and struggling, having made so many compromises and sacrifices to find the happiness and love that you seek, you still find yourself so frustratingly close, frustratingly short of being satisfied, if you're tired, of turning to sin, yet always having to bear this guilt and insecurity. The good news that Jesus has for you now is that there is a way out. God is offering you a meaningful and lasting way for the fulfillment that you seek. So if you resolve right now to accept Jesus as Lord and commit to following His wisdom, If you pray to the Holy Spirit to forgive you of the sins that you are guilty of and to ask Him for the strength to let go of whatever it is that's still dragging you down towards sin, as the Lord lives, I assure you that He will not leave you hanging. And He who is faithful is able to give to you more abundantly than you can ever ask or think. May this encourage us all friends let's pray blessed are you the lord of our god the king of the universe the creator of heaven on earth who has filled this creation with every good thing for us to be satisfied lord the generosity you have shown to us and have made available to us surpasses understanding yet we confess We foolishly give ourselves credit for the blessings that we have and continue on this futile effort to acquire these blessings for ourselves. Father, convict us by your Holy Spirit and show us how foolish and fruitless this effort is. And allow us, Lord, give us the humility to come to you and give us this heart of trust in you. Because it is only when we rest in you can we resist these influences that are telling us to do otherwise, and our hearts will finally be at rest. Burn that, brand that into our hearts that we will never forget it and that we may live by it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.